First, Lord Jesus. Do you like that song? I hope you do, because it encourages us. It encourages us to meditate on the preciousness of Jesus. It compares Jesus with a number of things of this world, things in nature, things that we enjoy, and yet it calls us to say, yet Jesus shines even brighter than all these things. I hope that you would delight in Jesus. I hope that Jesus is your treasure this morning. And if he's not your treasure this morning, I hope that by God's word, you will hear why Jesus should be a treasure this morning to each and every one of us. Would you open scripture to, to the book of Acts chapter 6? If you are visiting us this morning and uh, have not brought your Bible, or if, if you remember if not brought your Bible, um, we encourage you to bring it. But if you have not brought it today, you may find a, a Bible in the pew in front of you, and you may find the passage on page number 950. Our scripture reading from this morning comes from the book of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who will appoint, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will be devoting ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And, and what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to illumine our hearts and minds to understand his word? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, it is a joy to hear again from your word, to, to hear what you have revealed to us through the holy prophets and through the apostles, and to learn about the way the early church organized itself. Gracious God and Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us, enlighten our minds, and soften the wills of our hearts so that we may be willing to obey your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. Church administration. Church structure. Another word for it is polity. We've, uh, we've mentioned it briefly last Sunday in our church-wide Sunday school. And this morning, we get to see a glimpse of, of a prototype, uh, initial planning that was going on in 
administrating the life of the church. When God calls people to come and believe the gospel, and these people form churches, these churches must be administrated somehow. In this chapter, in the book of Acts, in chapter 6, we see some of the troubles, some of the, some of the problems that arose that required and called for some administration, for some leadership, and for some serving. As early as chapter 2 in the book of Acts, we, we read and hear that the church was committed to help those who were in need. And here in chapter 6, we read that one particular area where the church was committed to help was with the widows. The, the church was committed to help daily with the needs of the widows. Now, why? Because we have to remember in a day in society where there was no social security, no government assisting, assistance programs, especially those widows who would have little or no family that was able to help. When somebody became a widow in that situation, they were signing themselves up for, for poverty. They had no means of living. So the church responded and said, we must help the widows among us. So the church did. And that's what we see here in the book of Acts. But despite the great generosity we see in the early church to help one another, and specifically here the widows, despite this great commitment to assist the needy, complaints still surfaced. Even in a church full of unity and generosity, complaints still surfaced. The matter in which the very assistance of the widows was being carried out caused complaints. Friends, in a fallen world, even the best intentions even the best plans will still be sprinkled with failures, even in the church. Notice when this failure is happening. Verse 1, it's happening in the days um, when the disciples were increasing in number. The Lord was blessing this church with growth, with numeric growth. The proclamation of God's word was bearing fruit, but along with this growth, problems arose. And for some reason or another that is unknown to us, the Hellenistic members of the congregation were complaining against uh, the Hebrews because of the widows. The widows did not get the, the same treatment. The, the Hellenistic Hebrews did not get the same treatment as the Hebrew widows. So the members in the church who were Hellenists complained against the members who were Hebrews. Notice, it was not the widows that complained. Did you notice that? It was the members. The Hellenist members were complaining that their widows were not given the same treatment as the other widows. But given this complaint, the leaders of the church took responsibility and addressed it. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Let me explain this verse. Here's what it means. They had a church body meeting. 
they had a members meeting. You say, how do we know? Well, look again what it says. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. By the way, this is the first time in Acts that the followers of Jesus are called disciples. Following Jesus meant that you, that you became part of this congregation, that you became part of this gathering. The idea of being a loosely affiliated Christian or a loosely affiliated disciple was, was foreign. And now, those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are followers of Jesus, are called in together to solve this problem together. They are going to address this problem as a church. Not just the leaders coming up with an idea and implementing it on their own. They came up with a solution, but they brought the solution to the church. Why? Why to the church? Why didn't they just handle it behind closed doors? Well, because even though this was a complaint about the situation of the widows, it was addressing or had the potential of affecting the whole church. It was affecting the relationships between the members of the church, between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Also, even though the, the need was physical, there were physical needs that needed to be addressed, the complaints had the potential of causing a spiritual problem, a spiritual crisis. And therefore, the entire congregation needed to be involved in this crisis or solving it. More so, even though the leaders suggested a solution, it was a solution that the whole church had to agree with. That's why we see in verse 2, the full number of the disciples were being called, were being gathered. They had a church body meeting, just like we're going to have one after the service for those who are members of this church. Notice also that this solution is not given just by one person, one leader, but by the twelve. At this point, the twelve were leading the church together. They were called by Jesus, not one. Jesus had called twelve together to lead the expansion of the gospel and to lead his church. Yes, many times in the book of Acts, we'll see the, the spotlight on one of the twelve. Like in the first half of Acts, we see the spotlight on Peter. In the second half of Acts, we see the spotlight on Paul. But here, we see that it was the twelve. Together, they were leading in this decision or in this solution. They, no, they summoned the full number of the disciples. Well, with this setting before us, I want us to look at the solution that the leaders of the church together brought to the church and that the church together agreed to do. And this solution has two parts. The solution that the leaders brought to the church to address this problem had two parts. The first is maintain the priority of the word and prayer. Maintain the priority of the word and prayer. And the second, call for spiritual men to serve physical needs. Call for spiritual men to serve physical needs. Maintain the priority of word and prayer. Notice in verse 2, what the spiritual leaders say to the church, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. And the same thought is taken, expressed again in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now think with me for a moment. There's a crisis. The leaders want to address the crisis. They're tackling the problem. They're not ignoring it. But they're 12. It would have been very easy out of 12 to say, well, we will designate two or three or four to address this problem from among the 12. It would have been very easy to do that, right? Very natural. But they don't. They give this answer, it is not right that we should give up preaching. As if somehow they, the, the, something is wrong with the idea of them focusing their attention in taking care specifically for this particular crisis. It's a surprise to see that they come up, even though they were 12, they, that they come up with a new set of of leaders, if you will, a new set of men who, will, who are called to take charge of this need. Why? Why do they do this? Because they understand that even though they're 12 leading together this church, their primary responsibility was the proclamation of the Word and then prayer. But why? Why do they see it this way? Well, you remember multiple times in the book of Acts, we've already seen that the, the church grows and expands as a result of the preaching of the Word, as a result of speaking the Word of God. That's what brings life to the church. That's what brings expansion to the gospel. It's not programs. It's not the miracles. It's not other stuff that happens in the life of the church but it's a preaching, it's a speaking of the Word of God. So, those called to lead the church should give their primary focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. Now, we, we hear today often this phrase, get your priorities straight. Right? Somebody may want to rebuke somebody else and say, get your priorities straight. Well, in some ways, this is what we see in the book of Acts we see the apostles guarding the priorities of the church, guarding the priorities of their role, that, that the priorities that their role have in the church. It is in order to protect this priority from, distracting, from the distractions of doing other things that were good, that were needed, that had to be done. The apostles are not saying we should ignore the problem. We should ignore the, the, the distribution of the food. They're not saying that. They're not saying that ministry is less important or secondary. They're not saying that. They're saying it is not right for us, those called to lead the church, to give our attention to anything except the Word of God and prayer. This is a moment in the, in the life of the early church when the priorities of the church are guarded. The priorities of the leaders of the church are guarded. The suggestion to select seven men 
puts a spotlight not so much on the service of the seven men, but on the determination of the apostles to protect their primary task. Together, they were devoted, they were to be devoted to the word and prayer. And by the way, when it says in verse 4, to the ministry of the word, do you know what word it uses there for the word ministry? It's a word diakonia. They're devoting themselves to the service of the word. It's, we, we're seeing here two different services, two different ministries. One to assist the, the needs of the church that are real, that need to be addressed. But then there's another service, the service with the word. And the apostles protect this by choosing and encouraging the church to choose seven men. Again, there's no hint here that the apostles somehow see the, 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 the ministry of the seven men as somehow being beneath their qualifications or as somehow being inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. There's no such impression here. It was a matter of calling. Jesus has given them this calling. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what? And teaching them all that I have commanded you. Jesus has given a key responsibility to the apostles to engage in the work of teaching the Word of God. So friends, if the church is created and grown as a result of the ministry of the Word, if Jesus himself gave this commission to the apostles to, to, to make disciples by, by teaching, then the church leaders are those called to this ministry of the Word and prayer. And this should be their primary responsibility, their primary task. Friends, we live in a time and age when what is often expected of pastors and church leaders is not the priority of the ministry of the Word and prayer. But instead, a whole bunch of other things, such as, are they a good leader? Are they a good visionary? Are they a good, um, does he have good management skills? Is he able to, to lead? And leadership has become a category in and of itself in our day. But the primary responsibility that we see here is that of the ministry of the Word and prayer. Os Guinness, in his book, Dining with the Devil, gave the sober observation made by a Japanese businessman uh, visiting um, uh, or talking to an Australian. And he said, whenever I meet, this is what the, uh, what the Japanese businessman said, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. That's sad. That's sad. Now, this is not entirely the pastor's fault. It's also about churches who often ask from their pastors different emphases than their ministry of word and prayer. Often churches look at how many new programs were started under one's pastorate. Um, or how many new ministries were developed, or how many just 
people or if there's a building program and look, this, this sanctuary was built by this pastor. He's the one who built it, right? We, we, we look at wrong categories to boast about pastors. And therefore, because we look at, we, we use secondary categories to boast about pastors or we have secondary categories to express our expectations from pastors, oftentimes pastors cave in and serve the needs of the church, the perceived needs of the church, not the real needs of the church. So the, the, the fault goes both ways. But here in Acts 6, the apostles help us protect, help us keep the main thing to be the main thing about the main thing. In the church, in the life of the church, the preaching of the word takes supremacy. Not to the point where the other stuff is left undone. No, it will get done. But it will get done in such a way that the preaching of the word will not be distracted. Do you know why Acts 6 is such a crucial passage where it's placed for us here? Remember what was going on in chapter 5? The apostles were threatened by the priests to do what or not to do what? To preach, not to preach the word of God. That was the external threat. And now here comes an internal threat. And this is more subtle because it's spiritual. It's a real need in the life of the church, but it's still a real distraction that now the tables would be a distraction and keep these leaders away from preaching the word of God, speaking about Jesus. Praise God that the apostles did not fall for this trap. They saw the danger and said, it is not right. It is not right. No, we will be devoting ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, there's another application here, um, and this is where um, it does... This passage clarifies the distinction in, in roles between what's called, what will later become called deacons or the diaconate and then the, the spiritual leaders of the church, the, the pastors, the elders, or the, 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 the uh, overseers. This clarification between the two offices of spiritual leaders who are called to lead the church spiritually and spiritual men who are called to address the physical needs of the church as we call them, deacons. This, this clarification is helpful for us here in Acts 6 because in most Baptist churches, at least in the last 40, 50 years, um, this distinction has been blurred. In, in many congregations, the members of the church look to the deacons as a long-term established leadership of the church. Uh, they may hire and fire pastors, uh, pastors may come and go, but often the members of the church look to the deacons for the continuity and the influence and the direction of the church. What often happens often is that the deacon body is considered a second powerhouse to form some sort of checks and balances for the pastoral staff. Friends, this is not right. not according to Acts 6. This is the reason why we have Acts 6. 
to show the distinction of roles, to show the, to show the distinct, distinctions of priorities. This is why the seven were, were chosen. They were chosen not to create uh, a system of checks and balances within the church, not at all, but to ensure that those who were called to lead the church spiritually would continue to do so by keeping the priority of the ministry of the Word and prayer. The entire book of Acts points to the priority of the Word. It's filled with sermons. It's filled with sermons. Why is Acts filled with sermons? And by the way, next, next week in cha- Acts, chapter, the end of chapter 6 and, verse, and chapter 7, we will look at one of the longest sermons in the book of Acts. Chapter 7 has 60 verses. Long sermon. Why? Because the whole thing, the whole book of Acts is built upon the sermons of the prophets and the apostles and other members of the, of the church. It is to keep this priority of the word and prayer in the life of the church. That's why we have Act 6. That's why we have the emergence of the seven in the life of the early church. Because the church is built through the proclamation of the word. In Act 6, we do not see an expansion of the leadership circle in the church. We don't see an expansion of the leadership circle in the church, but a guarding of the priorities for the existing leadership team. Once this clarification is, is made, once a priority of the word and prayer for the leaders of the church is reaffirmed, we see the alternative. What is the alternative that, this, that, that, that the apostles are suggesting? Call for spiritual men to serve physical needs. Call for spiritual men to serve physical needs. Look at what the apostles suggest in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. Why seven and not twelve? You know, to make them equal. I have no idea. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us why there were seven. This number does not say that every church would have seven deacons. There's nothing of, of that here. Bottom line is, more important than the number is the requirement that these men were to meet. There are actually two requirements that are mentioned here in this passage. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, speak out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom. A good reputation among the church members was needed. How will the members um, entrust themselves and be, trust that the work of these seven men uh, is worthy if the church could not trust them. Reputation, a, in a good sense, reputation was needed. But it's not just any reputation. It's not just, just be a good man. It's a good reputation about what? Well, look at, at what they were supposed to be reputable. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The phrase full of spirit and wisdom is not giving two more requirements. It's one requirement. Spirit and wisdom, they don't, it's not as if they could come separately. As if somebody could be wise, but not full of spirit. And this tells us the kind of wisdom these men were supposed to have. These things come together. Spirit and wisdom come together. This means that they were not simply to look for men who are wise in the w- eyes of the world, who are wise in the way they 
dealt in life in general, right? They're just wise people in general. Apart from being Christians, they're just wise people. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the kind of wisdom that comes only to those who are full of the Spirit. It's come, it, comes, it talks about that kind of wisdom that, that comes out in us because we're guided by the Spirit, because we're submitted to the Spirit, and the Spirit leads our lives. And when someone lives that kind of life where it's clear that this person lives guided by the Spirit, and there's a lot of wisdom in the way he, he leads his life because of the Spirit in his life, that, and they're known for that kind of life, they qualify to serve in this role. Friends, there are times when churches often ask candidates to consider the position of the, of the diaconate uh, because they had influence in society or because they had wisdom in earthly matters or, or they're, uh, they're, they're good with people's skills or they're always there, but not necessarily known for being filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, you, you can sort of get this, you know, try to engage in a spiritual conversation with someone like that, and uh, it's pretty dry. You know, you can't engage with, in much spiritual conversation with, with a person. Um, from their lives, spiritually speaking, stuff about the church or stuff about the Spirit just doesn't, doesn't abound. They're wise in the ways of the world, but not necessarily because of the Spirit. Friends, we should be cautious and be careful that when we promote and ask people to serve in this way, they're first and foremost men who are of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Reputation, wisdom is tied to the Spirit. And here's, here's a point. Even the physical needs of the church needed to be guided by spiritual people. Even the physical needs. So we shouldn't look at people who just have a talent, a skill. But we should look at, are they spiritual first and foremost? Are they full of the Spirit? Because even though it's a physical need, because the church is a house of the living God, even the physical needs should be addressed spiritually. Even the physical needs. And notice, in the, notice the process. How do they go about it? There's very little information about how the decision on choosing the seven names came about, uh, but it's very clear that the 12 apostles involved the church in making the recommendations, and then the apostles made the appointment. Once these names are selected, look at verse, seven, uh, verse 6. They, these they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They laid their hands on them. Now, this, some, some people may, have, may call this the ordination process, but it's not very clear from Acts 6 uh, that this is an establishment of the official office of the diaconate. At the very least, we can say it's a prototype of that ministry, but not necessarily that this is where, where the diaconate office becomes official. The act of laying of hands is, is not necessarily referring to ordination. Why do I say that? Because several times in the book of Acts, the, the, the act of laying on ha of hands was used in a variety of circles. In chapter 8, um, the laying of hands is linked with receiving the Spirit. In chapter 9, Ananias is laying his hands on Saul to heal him from blindness and to give him the Spirit. 
That's, that's not about a commissioning. He's just being healed. Then in Acts 19.6, the laying of hands is linked with baptism. After the believers were baptized, they lay, they lay hands on them. So there's more than just the act of, of commissioning in the sense of, a, of an official ordination. And then there's more of that in, in 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 5 as well. But it is unclear if in Act 6 the laying of hands is specifically an act of ordination for an official office or it's more like, hey, we as a church entrust you to take care of this problem. And the laying of hands was symbolic of that official charge to take care of this crisis in Acts chapter 6. Most commentators do not see um, an establishment of the, of the diaconate office here, but just a prototype of it. So here in Acts 6, we see the laying of hands of affirmation that these men were given official responsibility to ensure that the physical needs of the church are addressed well and are addressed in a godly way. Why? Why were they chosen for the task? As I mentioned, first to address the physical needs the church members had. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the church continued to have a great heart for the poor among them. And deacons, these seven were chosen to make sure that the church addresses this well. Second, to promote and encourage the unity of the church by taking care of the physical needs. Because the, the role of the seven was to address the physical complaints, uh, the, the complaints of the physical needs. In doing so, they were protecting the spiritual unity of the church. One pastor called the deacons uh, the shock absorbers. And, and that's what they are. They, they see the, the oftentimes physical needs affect us spiritually if they're not taken well, taken care of well. So this group of men is called to, to, to go through the bumps and make sure that the ride gets, goes smoother, that we don't feel every bump. That's what deacons are called. They're actually, by doing so, by caring for the physical needs, they protect the unity of the church. And thirdly, as we mentioned, to support and protect the priority of the 12 leaders who lead the church in Jerusalem at that time so they could devote themselves to word and prayer. And what's the aftermath of all this? What's the, what's the conclusion of all this? In, in verse 7, we see that God honored the suggestion of the 12 to emphasize the priority of the ministry of word and prayer. God honored the decision of the whole church to ensure that its spiritual leaders were called to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer while the newly appointed men served the physical needs of the church. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. What a beautiful conclusion. The leaders committed themselves to the ministry of the word. The church affirmed that the primary responsibility of those who lead the church is the ministry of the word and prayer. And God made this word increase. And specifically, this meant also that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then there's a, an interesting phrase. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why a mention about the priests? Why is this mentioned here? Remember chapter 5? What did the priests order the apostles? They, got them, they gave them a beating and order them again not to speak in the, in the name of Jesus. And here we have 
the, the ministry of the word was bearing fruit in the very lives of some of the priests. And notice how, how this fruit, the word of God, rightly proclaimed, clearly expounded. What did it do? What did it produce in the lives of those who responded? Look at verse 7. Became obedient to the faith. Luke gives us this interesting formula that it's not just faith, but obedience to the faith. Oh, dear, Christian, uh, dear friend, if you're not a Christian, the message that the church has been entrusted to proclaim and make clear is a message about the goodness of God who created everything. He created all human beings. He created this entire universe, and He created us to reflect Him, to reflect His purposes, to reflect His nature and character. But mankind failed, rebelled against God, it happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And what they have done is they have simply disobeyed the word of the Lord. They went against the word of the Lord, and by doing so, they triggered death upon themselves, and not just upon them, but upon the whole human race. And because of their disobedience, now all of us lie in darkness. All of us are dead spiritually, and all of us deserve God's eternal punishment. But God, in His graciousness, in His kind mercy, found a solution. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect life, die on a cross. And by His death, our penalties have been paid. Jesus was a substitute for our iniquities, for our punishment. And because of Jesus, now we can be restored back to God. We can be now be brought back into God's family and be made able to hear God's word again. And when Christ comes into our lives, when Christ begins a new life in us, one of the results of that new life is that we are able to hear for the first time the word of God. And for the first time, we have a desire to obey it and live by it. Why? Because we have put our faith in Jesus. True faith leads to obedience. There is no true faith without obedience. And there is no obedience without true faith. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, I, I encourage you, come to Jesus. Believe in what He has done for you, and God will begin a new life in you that enables you to obey Him for the first time as you have never been able to obey Him before. This is the great promise of the gospel. This is the message that the church has been entrusted. And friends, when we turn to Jesus, He gives us the power to become obedient to the faith. That's your desire this morning. I'd love to talk to you. For the rest of us, for the rest of us who have made that commitment to Christ, for those of us who have started this new life with Jesus, we should be reminded that the message of the gospel, the word which we proclaim, produces not just faith in us, produces faith and obedience. That's the kind of stuff that was happening in Acts 6. And God was blessing the ministry of the Word, and believers were growing numerically. The church was growing in numbers. Oh, friends, I pray that this would be the preaching of the Word and prayer would be the priority of our church. 
There's many other things we're called to do. That we would be committed to help the poor, help the needy among us. That we would engage in each other's lives and live life together as one congregation. But at the end of the day, the one thing the church is called to do, which no other institution in the, on this earth can do, is preach the Word of God. Everything else, everything else can be done by other organizations as well. But the one thing no other organization has been trusted, entrusted to proclaim is the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I pray that even when, when we may face various distractions as a church, or various things that are good in and of themselves, but could distract us from this main task, that we would say, with, as the apostles did, it is not right to put aside the Word of God to serve the tables. Let us organize ourselves as a church in such a way that this priority of the Word and prayer indeed is a priority. And when this happens, everything else will fall into place. And God will bless the preaching of his word with fruitfulness. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, thank you that in your word you remind us of the priority that you have given to those you have called to lead the church. So that in the life of the church, the proclamation of your word will be central the proclamation of your gospel will take front stage. Father, we ask as a congregation, would you enable us to, to grow in this area? And Father, when this is so, we pray that the rest of the needs of the congregation will be addressed in a godly way, in a manner that pleases you, in a manner that brings unity to the church, so that together we may see that the proclamation of your word, along with a, with a focus on prayer, and the unity that exists in the body of Christ may indeed be a, a powerful testimony to those who are still apart from Christ. May you be exalted among us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.